0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I
1: It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about surviving storytellers and abominable Awakenings. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Emily Winter and Nick Goroff are voice talents Heather Thomas, Nick Goroff, and Melissa Medina. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first story tonight is written by Emily Winter and is performed by Heather Thomas and Nick Goroff. But first, I'd like you to listen to something from a dear friend of mine.
2: Welcome to the Texas Swamp, friend. I sure am happy you stopped by. I've got something I want to tell you about. Come on inside, won't you? Oh, uh, don't mind the wildlife. Kinda comes with the territory. Have a seat there, friend. I'll just be a second. Hmm. Oh, that's better. I wanted to tell you about our podcast, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, hosted by me, Drew Blood. We're a weekly storytelling podcast where you'll hear hand-picked horror from our favorite authors, accompanied by a full audio production and performed by yours truly. We're headed into our second season now, and I'd love to have you aboard. So stay a while, friend. And I'd never send you home empty-handed. <sighs> so I've got a story you're definitely going to want to hear before you go trudging back through the mire. So let's smoke them if you've got them, and drink those glasses to the bottom. From author Justin Pepe, I give you The Swamp. Oh, how the swamp stunk in the sticky, humid August night. That sweet reek of the endless purgatory in the marshlands. The shack where Bragg Gum lived with his wife was lost in the middle. He let his toe dip into the black nebulous of the duckweed-plated water and watched as the ripples shimmied outward, catching the wide moonlight on their crests. The oppressive heat sweltered under the arms of Bragg Gum and he shifted on the dock as hot beads of sweat ran down his lower back into the band of his three-day-old underwear. He looked out over the bayou through the vapors of humidity and lights of fireflies that winked as the stars above. A frog trilled from under the ramshackle dock made of rotten planks. Locusts sawed on from the pitch. Brad's jeans were ripped into capris above the ankle. Oh had the swamp stunk this time of year The axe, which was gnawed and splatted with orange dust, was leaning restfully on a soggy moss capped timber that was sunk in near the tall grass at the shore. Brad knew the swamp smell. He knew his floundering home in the swamp stunk, but he could not smell it. Bred was devoid of all sense of smell. His stink. The stink of others at the store in summer, and the mildew stench of his homeland, of the swamp, were all scentless steam in his hair-filled nostrils. The light of the orange ember smoldering at the end of his smoke, and the moon above was caught up in the silvery pools of the eyes of alligators staring, watching, lurking below him. They were invisible apart from this singular giveaway and would have otherwise been lost to the backdrop as logs or clumps of dirty weed in the murk. But they, like he, were there, part of the night, part of the swamp, predatory and monstrous. His wife was upstairs in the bathtub, happier than he, as he watched the ripples evaporate into the gloom and blackness of the bayou mists, perhaps, perhaps not. He could not find the capacity to care. He breathed in deep in a vain attempt to take in the odious bouquet of the marsh, but nothing came to him, nothing more than breathing in the vapors over a boiling pot of water on the stove. The only light in the shabby dwelling came down in a warm shaft onto the dock from the cracked bathroom window on the second floor. Brad got up from the end of the dock as he heard the grinding of car tires coming along the long gravel driveway leading to his secluded bit of land in the wild swamp. He threw his smoke down from the dock into the water. It hit with the sound like a match dying under a faucet. Something jumped at this and splattered in a large waking wave into the black water. He pictured something with pale eyes and ribbed skin that a largemouth bass or a snake would eat upon making such a debut into the stinking surf. The headlights cut through the stifling summer mugginess in two long glowing poles before the police car. The car came to a slow rolling stop as Brad made his way to greet the officer. Evening, mister, said Brad. The officer stepped out of the car, all the windows were down because of the mug in the air. Evening, Brad, said the sheriff. The missus home? Aye, said Brad, spitting a large wad from his mouth. She be disposed in the tub. You need her? I fetch her. No need to worry her, said the sheriff. His expression hardened and he stepped closer to Brad. But Brad... There have been some uh, odd complaints from the neighbors down yonder. He pointed to the laundry's home a bit to the south. The policeman drew a pack of lucky strikes from his breast pocket and lit one with his, as Brad would assume it, fancy city lighter, which clacked and clanged as he flipped the lid open and closed. Dumb bastards, Brad thought to himself. Complaints of what nature? Brad asked. <clears throat> Something about a smell, Brad. Something about a smell like hell. Like a rotten animal. They say it was wafting down on them real bad and they want us to take a look around here, said the sheriff. Matter of fact, your place is smelling awful raptin tonight. Swamp, said Brad as he fingered his mildew-ridden belly button. He snipped the cheese that he pulled forth from the cavity with indifference even as the sheriff let his hand casually rest on the revolver strapped to his hip. You got one of them permits now? Brad said before spitting again. It landed with a loud wet splat on the rocks. I don't. Not yet. Don't want to trouble you with it. But tell me true. There anything I need to know about in the swamp, the sheriff asked. Eyes reading Brad's rather vacant and simple face. Swamp always thinking this time of year. Shit, it might be a deer fell down the sinkhole. I can help you look in the morning, okay? He said. Well, sure, that'd be just fine, said the sheriff, who turned back to his car but paused before taking a step. Say, Brad, got any coffee on? I could sure use the cup on the graveyard shift, only if you please. Brad coughed up something large and gunky in his throat and held it in his mouth before discharging it into the gravel at his bare feet. Sure, I'm sure missus got something for you. Brad did an overly polite bow to the officer and bid him towards the porch. The timber plank stairs yelled in protest as the two ascended them, almost cutting out the shrill trill of the tree frogs and crickets. The screen door flapped open with a simple and misused week before clacking back into its lock as Brad and the officer entered the putrid residence. Water-stained walls, cabinets left open to expose the chipped china-like bone beneath a wound, plates and tins on the counters. Two matching rough wood chairs with their arched backs pushed out from the small round table where the old coffee was left in metal mugs. The officer sniffed. Stink. Swamp. An old oil lantern hung from the ceiling from some old cable that was the sole source of light in the room. It rocked on the breeze from the open window and allowed its light to cast odd and sharp shadows around the room giving all a distinctly purgatorial feel. The wallpaper, once painted with bright sunflowers, roosters, and diamond patterns, sagged on the walls like an ill-fitted dress on a woman and was bunched and torn by water exposing the ribcage of timbering beneath. Awful quiet, Brad. Thought you said Mrs. is upstairs, inquired the officer. (laughs) Indeed she be coffee still? Brad inquired back. Um, matter of fact, you think I might have a look upstairs? Asked the officer. Brad turned and poured himself a cup of old cold coffee from the moldy pot. The officer quietly unsnapped the cover of his pistol. Uh, sure? Shrugged Brad. The policeman made his way around through the narrow kitchen, avoiding the dirty walls for the earnest desire not to get the filth on himself. The banister to the stair was unsurprisingly cracked in the pillars and railing as he ascended the dirt-smeared steps. The pistol was lifted with a creak from the leather holster as the stained steps quaked beneath his boots. He knocked on the bathroom. No answer. He knocked again upon the door and entered. There. The maggot ridden corpse of Mrs. Gum stared back, holes where eyes had been, now just an eggy residue dribbled from the sockets, skin blackening, lips pulled back around yellow teeth, an undefinable and dark liquid dripped from her mandible. She was mutilated in places, and her stomach cavity was a gutted hole revealing nothing but a dark pocket under her ribs. She was not the only, nor, by appearances, the oldest one left here. The officer's eyes scanned other bodies, reddened with fresh blood and blackened with old. Some missing teeth, others seemed chewed and sawed a fest of gore. The stench, unmentionable other than it burned with purification, Roadkill left to decompose for months was the only comparable testament the officer could fathom in the seconds the synapses of his mind had to fire the thought into consciousness. The bath mat caught his attention as small things seemed to do in such a crisis. Even the once floral pattern was almost unidentifiable under the smudge of liquid and tissues that stained it. He turned to the door And Brad was there. He was stripped bare, showing the thick forest of fur that extended from the scruff of his chin to his loins. Brad was looking at Mrs. Gum in the tub. Well, hon, they think a dang deer is making that stink. But by God come morning, the police dogs ain't gonna ever find you in that damn stinking swamp. Ah! that eggs, orange with rust, still managed to flash in the light of the single-hanging bulb of the bathroom. The axe knocked the bulb but did not break it, flashing strobes of shadow and light in dizzying arrays around the room. The freshest red blood flowed over the black stains of the old, and the chirps of crickets, frogs, and the lapping of swamp water took over the night. When more officers came, Brad's bathroom was as ordinary as yours the next morning. Clean and welcoming to the point, one wouldn't mind using it, despite the rest of the house. All the while, the police searched the grounds around the home. Brad brewed fresh coffee for them from a clean pot, and no one noticed that the police car was missing. Only Brad knew now where the vehicle settled. deep. In the stinking swamp. You've been listening to The Swamp by Justin Pepe. A good reminder to tread lightly when you're off the beaten path. You never know what you're walking into when you're out here in the wilderness. Good thing about this podcast though. You get all of the swamp and none of the stink. And not a single one of my listeners has ever been axe-murdered. Not to my knowledge, at least. But Then again, we're still only in Season 1. Thanks for stopping by, friend. And if you enjoyed this little taste of terror, I invite you to search for Drew Blood's Dark Tales on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you do your listening. And subscribe for longer episodes each and every week. So grab a drink for the road, friend, and watch your step on the way out. I expect you back in one piece, you hear? Until then, may the wind be at your back. May the road rise up to meet you. And thanks for listening. And I hope to see you again real soon. Adios, y'all.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.
1: You can hear more from Drew on our very own archives, as well as new episodes every Thursday on your favorite podcast app and YouTube videos every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now back to tonight's first story. In it, we will meet Maggie, a young writer struggling with her identity who inherits her grandfather's cabin in Wyoming shortly after his passing. She plans to spend the weekend writing her novel and sorting through his estate, but her plans come to a halt the first night when a bear tries to break into the cabin. Without further ado, I present to you, The Cabin.
3: You've got to make this count, or I'm afraid we'll have to drop this one.
4: His stern voice stung her ear as it came in loud and clear through the phone speaker, and she could already feel her shoulders tensing. She took a shallow breath in. All right, Dean. I'll do my best. Maggie poked the red button on her phone, then returned her hand to the wheel as she approached the snowy driveway. She looked up the steep, winding path, Her old car was about to climb. She had inherited her grandfather's prized possession after he passed, and here it was, somewhere up there in the trees. Gah, Grandpa, of all the cabins in Wyoming, you chose this one, basically on the top of Mount Sinai, she said, accelerating. The rustic two-story log cabin grew larger as she navigated the driveway, curve by curve, Resting neatly amidst a white blanket of snow, the elevated structure boasted massive logs that were smooth to the touch. A covered front porch housed a few green iron chairs on one end and a stone fireplace on the other. The location was inconvenient, but the cabin was still a beautiful trinket. The car's tires crunched along the snow as Maggie pulled up and parked. She peered through the driver's side window at the front door, which was covered by a rusty screen. Many years' worth of winter vacations were well spent on that mountain, and she could practically see it right in front of her. Her grandmother walking out the front door in her apron, waving a spoon in the air, lifted from the bowl of batter she was mixing. It always made a creaky sound when she opened it to find her grandmother cooking what was usually some form of comfort food. Her grandmother loved to cook up a huge meal, and would always be nearby to put seconds on her plate, even when Maggie insisted she was full. And her grandpa would always be waiting on the porch for her to show up. He'd lean against the porch post with a cigar in his mouth, repeatedly flicking his Zippo lighter, its brass engraved with his initials. He was a quiet man, always nearby with his old wooden cane. Although Maggie suspected that he didn't need it, it was his trusty companion, passed down from generations. Despite the warm memories, the cabin was just a lifeless shell without her grandparents there. Maggie studied the old structure, unsure of what she should do with it. She stepped out into the snow in her rubber sorrel boots and pulled her puffy coat closer to her body. Goosebumps formed along her arms and down her spine, and she buried her nose in her plaid scarf, a gift from her grandmother from two Christmases ago. The snow is one thing I hadn't looked forward to, she thought, scuffing it with one foot. She looked around the white canvas of bald black trees, the view of the nearby mountain cliff catching her off guard. She slowly made her way to the edge, looking down what seemed to be several thousand feet. The views were haunting, the white fog bleeding through the pines, its dreariness reminding her of the endless journey the writing process had been for her. This was her first book to be published, and she'd never been so hard on herself. In fact, throughout most of her life, she felt she wasn't good enough at many things, and her colleagues' constant criticism confirmed as much. Unfortunately, she always felt like an imposter around them, the one they picked on for being too nice, too weak, and not successful enough like they were. Maybe it was because her prose tended to revolve around her grandparents. Or at least it had initially, until her fellow writers chased those stories off. Too sentimental, too old-fashioned. She had been told to write from experience time and time again. Her grandparents had always been the center of her universe. What other experience could be closer to home? She credited pure luck that she was in the position she was in now as a writer. It certainly wasn't because of her talent. She knew that. Someday everyone around her would surely call her out as a complete fraud, and she would be rallied against and brought down. And then she would have failed them. Of course, her grandparents. The thought clawed at her, a physical sensation at the base of her throat. Maggie squinted towards the horizon and attempted to numb out her technique for achieving peace. Because of the criticism, she had moved on and left those stories behind, like a set of doughy spoons left to soak in the mixing bowl. Before long, there would be no substance left clinging to them. She was indeed angry at herself for not being bold enough to create what she felt was truest to her, because she was too busy trying to mesh with others around her. The original plot ended up sizzling away from all the frying by her agent, who was determined to make it fit the audience's appetite. Of course, Maggie would just sit there on endless conference calls, nodding silently at every suggestion. Deep down, she was furious. She often found herself asking, Who am I? Writing was a way to express herself. The freedom she had once felt as a child, here at this cabin, was long gone. Now even the joy of writing about it had been smuggled from her. Her thoughts were interrupted by the vibrating of her phone. Hey, she said softly, instantly comforted by the name on the caller
3: ID. Hey, that made it to Colorado, finally,
4: Jerry said. Maggie could hear the clunk of him inserting a gas pump into his car. So, six hours to go, huh? She asked. She couldn't help feeling the disappointment. He was supposed to have left much earlier. He'd initially planned on meeting her at the cabin for the weekend, after an extended business trip. First his plane was delayed, and now this.
3: It's bad winter storm coming in. I really want to get to you, but I may have to wait till morning.
4: He said. It's okay. I want you to be safe. Do what you need to do. I'll have the place clean and smelling good by the time you get here tomorrow. Maggie said, trying to sound cheerful. Jerry asked. She could see his smile on the other end and laughed. (laughs) Yes, there will be plenty of that. She held the phone to her ear as she glanced at the mountains. Cuddling, I mean, not fire. You remember that one time I caught the rug on fire, and my grandfather had to stop it out?
3: How could anyone forget?
4: It's weird here without them.
3: I know. Know if I can make it by tonight,
4: Jerry promised. Love you, Maggie said before hanging up, without waiting for him to say it back. Tears brimmed in her eyes. If she heard him telling her he loved her, which of course she knew he did, they might spill over. She took one last look at the mountain before returning to the side of the cabin, where a towering pile of firewood rested. She threw some wood on top of a blue tarp and bundled it together to drag it inside, but as she bent over to pick it up, the sound of crackling branches startled her. She turned to face the dark woods and scanned the trees. Nothing. Accompanying the noise was an unsettling feeling that she was being watched. She felt a stare coming from deep within the forest, though she was unsure from where. She drew her attention back to her work, ready to get inside as soon as possible. She dragged the tarp along the floor, creating a path in the snow, and then up the front porch steps, where she stopped to dig around in her purse for her keys, occasionally glancing up at the forest. Her hands grew clammy as she tried each key on the ring. Finally, she found the right one. She turned the key to the left and pushed the door open, dumping her belongings and firewood in the foyer and hurrying back to the front door. She peeked out one more time towards the forest, still nothing but that uneasy feeling. She shut the door, locked it tight, and rested against it. This was going to be a long night. The familiar space was moderately comforting. Her grandfather had designed the interior with high vaulted ceilings, exposed trusses, two horizontal wood beams that divided the living space, and a wall of slender windows that stretched along the ceiling. Covering the windows were towering drapes, only operable by remote control. Not to mention the plethora of leather furniture, which gave off a scent that slapped Maggie in the face. She paced back and forth, occasionally glancing at the computer screen. She had been doing so for the last fifteen minutes, Was the narrative arc strong enough? Was the ending going to be satisfying? Or would she rewrite the whole thing? At this point, the deadline was just around the corner, so she had to work with what she had. And yet she still found herself procrastinating, doing things like polishing and packing her grandfather's old cookware, or cleaning out the closets upstairs. Anything would do if it prevented her from facing the daunting task of writing that book. She felt like her identity was tied into the story, but her agent and editing team kept picking it apart. It was a balancing act of preserving who she was and preserving the book's future success. It didn't matter. The long hours she poured her heart and soul into it would most likely be a waste because somehow she would mess it up. Eventually, she had found herself sitting on the old kitchen floor, scrubbing the cast-iron pots from the lower cabinets, one by one placing them into a box. When she started sorting out a drawer at the far end of the kitchen, the least convenient location for actual kitchen items, and thereby a junk drawer, a shiny object in the back caught her eye. Hey, she said aloud, greeting her grandfather's old lighter as she reached for it. She grazed her thumb over her grandfather's initials, He had been her guiding light during the worst of times. He would be the one she would call on those hard, rainy nights she felt defeated, always full of advice and encouraging words. She would speak to him often about her writing, sharing the doubts and defeat she felt from the crowd she hung around. Once when she was visiting him at the cabin, he told her,
3: My dear, I assure you, you do have talent or else your peers wouldn't talk so much about you to begin with. But I understand where you're coming from. Fear of man is one hell of a bear to fight. You've got to keep your head down. Be persistent. You'll get it one day, and you'll catch him by surprise.
4: Maggie remembered his grin and the way he shook his cane as he attempted to lift her spirits. For a moment, her heart felt warm. She placed the lighter in her pocket. Before she stored away the last pan into the cabinet, the front door began to shake. She thought it was an earthquake for a second, but they didn't have those here. She grasped the pot to her chest and peeked at the door from behind the counter. Was it the mysterious observer from the woods? God, she hoped not. She would probably fall over with a stroke, or freeze like a deer in headlights, if a stranger were to walk through that door. She was already on edge about her project. After taking a few breaths, she realized it was just the wind from the snowstorm rattling the door, which was flimsy with age. She rolled her eyes and stood up, sitting the pot down on the counter and walking towards the door with her hands resting on her hips. She observed the small cracks where it met the frame unevenly, noticing that, in places, she could see the snow from the inside. If she ever sold this place, that needed to be replaced. Just one more thing to worry about. Perhaps Jerry was right, and she should have hired someone else to handle the estate. She took the plaid blanket from the couch and wrapped it around her shoulders, and then walked along the wall of tall windows, opening each curtain with an automatic button. Of course, she couldn't see anything but a white film of snow and the whistling wind that accompanied it. She stared into the white nothingness and felt like she and the cabin were all that existed in the world. She blinked hard, forcing herself to come back before closing the window drapes, The crackling of the fireplace reminded her to add a few more pieces of wood. She noticed several large books resting on the mantel, stacked one on top of another as she was doing so. She picked one up and opened it. It was one of those hollow books where you could hide private possessions, and inside she found a bottle of whiskey that had to be twenty or more years old. She studied it as she opened another book, also hollow inside. Inside that one was a Smith & Wesson revolver. She took it out and observed it, rubbing her fingers along the frame. It was beautifully crafted, and it drew her in a way she felt she should resist. She suddenly grew fearful and quickly placed the gun back in the box and stuck it on the shelf. She took the bottle of whiskey and headed for the large recliner next to the fireplace. She plopped down, opened the bottle, and pressed it to her lips. "'and tipped it upside down. "'With a start, Maggie awoke to the front door rattling again. "'She sat up from the recliner and looked down at her blouse, "'soaked in the remaining whiskey. "'She grabbed the plaid blanket and began to pat herself with it, "'disgusted at what she'd done. "'The door continued to rattle, but this time it sounded different. "'She couldn't breathe. "'She stopped blotting her blouse and looked toward the noise.' Something from the outside was scratching its claws along the wood. It released a sudden growl, so loud that she felt it was already in the house with her. Whatever it was, it sounded desperate to get inside. On bare, quiet feet, she padded toward the window next to the front door and peered through the drapes. She opened her mouth to cry out, but no sound came, and she covered her mouth with her hand. She backed away placing one shaky foot behind the other as the clawing and growling continued, growing louder and louder. She ran, grabbed her phone off the kitchen counter, and attempted to quick-dial Jerry. She waited for the phone to ring, but there was nothing but silence. She looked at her phone. No service. Crap. She opened a new internet window on her phone and attempted to search how to scare off a grizzly bear page didn't load. She set her phone on the staircase and looked for a weapon to keep near, occasionally eyeing the front door, which surprisingly grew quiet. Heart hammering in her chest, she tiptoed to the fireplace and opened the hollow book to find her grandfather's gun. She checked it for bullets and discovered only one was in its chamber. She attempted to control her shallow breathing. "'doubting all the while that the small gun could bring down such a massive bear. "'I can't let this thing in,' she cried softly, hunting for bullets in a nearby drawer. "'She looked up at the door again and noticed the silence. "'She looked all around the large room, thinking of other ways the bear could get in. "'It could very well come crashing through these windows,' she thought, as she looked up at them. "'She paced up and down the living room, waiting for the bear to make another move.' She hated this. What could be worse? Finally, she sat against a wall in the hallway with the revolver close to her chest. She sat in silence and listened for quite some time, keeping her gaze toward the floor. To her surprise, some of the loose floorboards in the mudroom near the back door began to move. Oh, surely not, Maggie cried inside. The grizzly bear was now under the pier and beam foundation of the cabin, probing the area for weak spots. Maggie watched as each wood plank slowly rose up and down. Was there no subfloor in the part of this cabin? Or had the bear pried it off some time ago, knowing eventually a human victim would return to the cabin? After a pause, where she chanced to think the bear had moved on, its muzzle burst through one of the wood planks. The bear tried to climb up with its two massive front paws, but the opening was too small. Maggie screamed, but managed to jump up and slam the door to the mudroom closed. She hurriedly looked around for something to move in front of the door. There it was. She unplugged the refrigerator in the kitchen, which was fortunately almost empty, and scooted it in front of the door. Never had she moved such a large appliance so quickly. She stepped back and looked towards the bottom of the door not blocked by the fridge. It was only a few inches of space, but she could see the bear's shadow moving back and forth. Its long claws clicked along the wood floor as it snorted and huffed. For just a second, she closed her eyes. She tried to pretend it was her grandfather's old dog, or perhaps the numerous deer they shot after Maggie begged him to go along on his hunting trips if she could somehow transform the animal into something less terrifying. Perhaps she could better face it. She went up the staircase and sat on a step, putting her hands over her face. Tears rolled down her face. If that bear were to get in, there would be no hope for her. Of course, she thought about making a break for her car and speeding away, but the dangerous snowstorm wouldn't permit her to see anything. She could blindly take the risk, but the cabin's driveway was so steep, there was a chance she could drive off the mountain. What would be a better way to die? Once it got in, fall off a cliff to a quick death, or be ripped into dinner-sized pieces by a bear. Yes, it would eventually get in, seeing how persistent it was. Maggie placed the gun in her purse and put on her jacket, gloves, and hat. She looked back towards the mudroom, "'then sunk her way towards the front door and opened it. "'A gush of snow-laden wind hit her in the face "'and splattered snow across the foyer "'as she walked out on the front porch "'and pulled the door closed. "'She still couldn't see anything in front of her "'and had to guess exactly where her car was. "'She walked down the frozen porch steps "'and extended her trembling arms out in front of her, "'feeling around for the driver's side door. "'To the left corner of the house, Maggie heard a grunt. She gasped and lunged toward where she thought her car would be, slamming into it. She felt for the door handle and unlocked it, climbing in and shutting it just in time. The bear had found her and began circling her car. It was just a smudge in her vision, obscured by the falling snow, but somehow she could still sense its confidence in the way it moved. She tried to focus on the task at hand to get the hell out of there, like the bear, she would have to let go and let her instincts guide her. She turned the key in the ignition and although she couldn't see anything ahead, she began to drive forward, laying on the horn, in hopes that the noise and movement of her car would scare the bear off. You've got this. You know this place like the back of your hand. You came here plenty when you were little, she said. She screamed as she felt the first dip in the driveway. Okay. The mountain wall is to my left. Death is to my right, she said. Another quick dip tied her stomach in a knot. Dear God, this is crazy. What am I doing? She yelled. She slowly descended, anticipating the next curve down. Just before the next turn, she bumped her car into a nearby tree, which must have meant she needed to turn the wheel to the right to go around the curve. She put her car in reverse and began to back her car away from the tree, only to slip a back wheel off the driveway. With nothing but ice and snow to cling to, her car slowly started to slip off the steep road onto a lower part of the driveway. Maggie tried to open her door, quickly realizing it was jammed on something just outside. She tried rolling down her window, but it was coated in ice. It stopped midway. She began to squeeze herself through the opening and the window glass shattered, slicing her arm open as the car continued to roll backward. After pushing herself out, just moments before her car went tumbling down towards the bottom of the driveway, she laid in the snow and held her arm, stifling her sobs as she heard her car crash down below. She struggled to her feet and listened for any signs of the bear, ignoring her pain for the moment. Only silence surrounded her as she began to make her way back up the driveway. She dusted off the snow from her clothes as her feet crunched along the rugged, packable snow. Wiping the cold tears from her eyes, she examined what she could make of the cabin. Amid the haze of snow and fog, it looked like a blurry, brown beast camped on the icy landscape. She ran as fast as she could towards the house, droplets of blood falling onto the snow. She hustled inside, locked the door, and looked out the window for any sight of the bear. Nothing in sight. She pulled out her phone again. No service, it read. She angrily threw it at the couch and it bounced onto the floor. A moment later, she bent down to pick it up, placing it back in her pocket. She had abandoned tending the fire, and the cabin had grown dark and cold the embers at the bottom of the fireplace fading quickly. She pulled a dry pair of gloves from her coat pocket and put them on her icy, stiff fingers. She walked to the mudroom door and slid the fridge away a couple of feet and slowly cracked the door open, examining the snow flying through the hole. Was there something she could put on it? But anything she decided to place there would surely fall through, with her luck. And right on key where she stood, started to cave in, and her legs started to fall through. On the way down, the broken edge of the wood tore her slacks and penetrated the skin of her calf. With a rush of adrenaline flooding her senses, she pulled herself away from the hole and shut the mudroom door, securing the refrigerator in front of it. She limped towards the kitchen counter and began to doctor her calf, pulling a massive splinter from the blood. A few seconds later, a loud thud, Came from outside one of the living room windows. With one hand holding a dish rag to her wound and another on the curtain remote, Maggie opened the drapes, which revealed the bear outside, peering in. Apparently, he had climbed the tower of logs that rested against the house. Once he saw Maggie, he opened his jaw and revealed his teeth, clearly hankering to sink them into her flesh, an eager, to let her know his intentions in this showy display. She watched in horror as the bear balanced expertly on top of the logs. It was clear he was trying to figure out how to get to her. Suddenly, something out of view caught his attention. In a graceful movement that belied his girth and height, the bear leaped from the log pile and up onto the roof, disappearing out of sight. "'You have got to be kidding me!' Maggie cried out. She followed the noise the bear was making to the open doorway at the top of the staircase. Abruptly, the sound of a window shattering upstairs made her weak to the knees. She looked around for a solution. At any moment now, the bear would come sprinting down the stairs and would be on top of her, pulling her flesh away from the bone. She grabbed the revolver out of her purse and cocked it, grasping it tightly and aiming it at the top of the stairs. This shot would have to count. The bear appeared at the top of the stairs, but he wasn't acting the way she'd expected. He was moving slowly. His head hung low as his gaze pierced through her. He wanted to savor the moment to prove to Maggie that he had the upper hand, that he ruled over her. Maggie didn't blink, She kept the gun pointed at the bear as he slapped a paw onto the first step, down, and then paused. Then another. The bear's strange behavior rendered her frozen, unable to think clearly. Something about him felt more human than it should. She remembered that it might be a good idea to shoot the gun. She aimed right at the bear's head and pulled the trigger. Unbelievable. He had dodged the bullet by moving his head, as if he'd known the shot was coming. He seemed to grin, knowing that was her best and last attempt to save herself. He bared his teeth and roared, leaping down the stairs. The scene played out in slow motion. Was this it? She felt a wave of regret for the carefree life she could have lived, the one she had always wanted, where she gave Dean the finger and wrote the story she had wanted to now it would never come. She blinked away her thoughts and sprinted toward the kitchen, grabbing the cast iron pot that lay on the counter. She jumped on top of the counter with it and threw it at the bear. But of course, that didn't do any good. The bear charged towards her, and without skipping a beat, she leaped over the couch and began throwing whatever she could find at him. Vases, board games, and paintings flew across the room at the bear. It moaned and clawed the air at every attack. Maggie looked down at the dresser next to her grandfather's recliner, remembering this was where he smoked. She opened the top drawer, praying there was a can of butane somewhere in there. Yes, there it was. The metal edges of the can corroded with age. She grabbed it and bent the tip open, then tipped the tall lamp next to her so she could reach its thick, tufted shade. Which she coated with the liquid that leaked from the canister. She waited a few seconds for the bear to get closer. When it was only several feet away, she closed her eyes, lit her grandpa's lighter, and ignited the shade. She thrust the tall lamp forward, scalding the fur around the bear's eyes. The momentary confusion gave her just enough time to get a head start up the stairs. She made it to the top, closed the door, and climbed up a dresser and onto the exposed rafters above the bedroom without thinking. She let out a cry of agony and defeat, sobbing uncontrollably as she hugged the rafter she laid on. She had tried so hard and couldn't even save her own pathetic life. She had no backbone. She had failed at everything. And now at this She laid her head on the wooden rafter and cried silently as she waited for the bear to recover and find her. Surely, he would climb the rafters and pull her down, devouring her limb from limb. She watched the closed door, waiting for the bear to burst through. Instead, she noticed a thick ivory walking cane mounted above the door. Grandpa's cane. She inched her way down the rafter, reaching her arm towards the top of the door where the cane hung, After a considerable effort to reach it, she finally was able to tear it off the wall. It had a dark brown shaft, brass collar, and an ivory hook at the end that served as a handle. Maggie held the ivory in her hand, and when she turned to examine it further, the wooden shaft cover fell to the ground, revealing a narrow but very sharp double-edged steel dagger. Its sheen reflected her weary eyes at her, and she grinned, as courage returned to her. All too suddenly, the bear pushed down the door with his front paws and crashed into the room. Maggie threw herself on top of his back, driving the dagger through his shoulder. The bear reached back and tried to claw her. She jumped backward, withdrawing the blade as she did so, and sat against the wall with it outstretched in front of her. The bear fell onto Maggie, and the miniature sword sunk through his heart. She watched the life leave his eyes as he became limp, his weight crushing her body. She couldn't breathe, and with all of her might, she pulled down on the dagger slicing from the bear's heart down to its belly. The bear's innards fell out onto the floor, relieving his body of some of its mass, and she was able to climb out from under the lifeless heap, completely covered in hot blood. She stood up over him and looked down, the blade still in her hand. She dropped it, turned around, and headed down the stairs in silence. She walked through the living room, then the foyer, then out the front door. The sun was rising, and she took in its beauty for the first time in a while. The storm and fog had receded, leaving an eerie landscape of white and grey silhouettes of trees. Once again she found herself looking at the overlook, but this time with relief. She turned her gaze towards the sound of a car approaching the driveway and slowly walked towards it. She did not feel the elation she had initially expected upon her husband's arrival, but this did not trouble her or diminish her love for him. She was alive, and only because she had saved herself, alone. Jerry got out and shut the door. She could feel him taking in the sight of the ripped clothing and blood, and she walked to him and embraced him. She could feel the victory on her face. She would go back inside, and they would clean up the mess. Then she would sit down at her grandmother's desk that was now her desk, yet still her grandmother's. And no one or nothing would prevent her from finishing that story and changing those parts that weren't hers. She had the cabin now to keep her moving forward. She was suddenly glad that she had not hired the estate manager. She had fought for this place and would not sell a single pan.
1: I hope you enjoyed The Cabin, as written by Emily Winter and voiced by Heather Thomas and Nick Goroff. If you enjoyed Heather's performance, you can hear more of her right here on our official YouTube channel, as well as on the amazing Creepy Podcast, where several of her vocal performances are available for your enjoyment. If you check her out, please be sure to give her performances a thumbs up, leave a kind word, and tell her you heard her here on this program and that Steve sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Our second tale of the evening is written by Nick Goroff and performed by Nick Goroff and Melissa Medina. In it, we will greet a brutal storm rolling in. An old wanderer seeks refuge with the kindness of strangers who hide a dark secret. And an ancient terror rises from the past. Now... Without further ado, I present to you, The One Blind Eye.
3: Our story begins, as so many do, with the approach of an oncoming storm. In the port city of Trondheim, Norway, a city regarded as the nation's capital of knowledge, a young married couple are sitting in their living room watching television. Their love and bond would be obvious to any who looked upon them, as their consummate affection and displays thereof for one another were so routine and generally unabashed that many friend and colleague would often quietly express mild exasperation regarding their overt and often public showings between each other. But only when the pair was out of earshot, of course. They had met some years ago quickly finding their connection deepening over their shared and most peculiar interests and passions. Both shamelessly adored talent shows and reality television, such as the program they watched just then. Likewise, they both held a deep love for the outdoors, often camping and hiking in the grand majesty of their country's mountains and forests. And then there was another passion which they shared, but one that was so intimate it is hardly appropriate to mention—for now, at least. It was later in the afternoon, and above their home and through their windows shone the pale light of the grey sky in which the clouds continually rolled and roiled with greater and greater intensity. Smatterings of rain would occasionally fall and tap upon the picture window at the front of their house as the oncoming storm drew closer. It was unseasonable weather out of the ordinary yet in it rolled promising high winds heavy rain and thunder as the evening progressed as the singing showcase tv program drew to a close the husband jacob rose from the couch and proceeded into the kitchen to begin preparing dinner his wife nora followed from the refrigerator jacob retrieved a slab of meat wrapped in brown paper and tied with twine As he set to preparing it, cutting smaller fillets and trimming excess fat from the steaks and salting and seasoning them to their mutual liking, Nora began chopping garlic, white mushroom caps, red and green peppers, and a large white onion which would accompany the main dish. The pair adored cooking with one another, always finding it a beautiful reminder of the domestic bliss they enjoyed as well as something closely so related to their more unusual passions. As Jacob set the cast iron skillet upon the stove top and lit the burner below, Nora fetched the olive oil and kissed him on the neck as she placed it beside him on the countertop. The two smiled broadly at one another and said nothing, before leaning into each other to share a deep and lingering kiss. Before long, the skillet was ready, and throwing a dash of olive oil and the finely chopped garlic, Jacob then proceeded to lay the fillets upon the piping hot surface, listening as the flesh sizzled and popped in the pan. As the meat seared, he deftly flipped the pieces in the pan, ensuring perfectly even cooking in temperature, and then to either side and between the pieces, tossed in the remaining mushroom, pepper, and onion. While these cooked, Nora prepared side salads, having recently insisted that the pair enjoy more roughage in their diets, as they both saw the age of thirty just on the horizon. While it was true that no one could live forever, Nora in particular was dedicated to trying her very best. Outside, the winds continued to pick up, with the rain intensifying, falling harder and louder upon the windows. Soon, dinner was ready, and served, and pairing their favorite red Italian wine with the rather well-balanced meal, they were ready to eat. Ready, that is, until an unexpected and altogether rare distraction caught their attention. There was a knock at the door. Not expecting guests, as they only hosted such and very seldom occasions, they looked to each other quizzically. Were we expecting anyone tonight? Jacob asked. Nora shrugged.
5: No, and who would be out in this weather anyway?
3: She replied. They paused another moment, looking to one another and then to the door. Another round of knocking came then. It was far from aggressive, and while sounding like any ordinary knock at any ordinary door, the pair found something oddly compelling about it. Rising, Jacob motioned for Nora not to bother getting up. I'll see who it is. Don't worry. Probably just someone trying to sell something, he said.
5: In this storm, though?
3: Nora asked, her face contorting with confusion and intrigue. She rose from her seat and accompanied her husband to the door. Opening it, the couple were greeted by a sight that was generally quite rare throughout their country. It was a homeless man, dressed in dirty rags, wearing a round hat and leaning on a cane. He was soaked to the bone and shivering as the winds whipped about him, causing his ratty and tattered clothes to billow slightly. His face, old and weathered as it was, bore a look of misery and hunger. In his eyes an obvious suffering can be seen, and in his left in particular the ravages of age were apparent, as the eye itself was hazy and covered with the white sheen of cataracts. His right eye, however, was curiously clear as it looked upon them from beneath a heavy, unkempt brow and from below the brim of his hat. Yes, uh, can we help you, sir? Jacob asked. I do hope so, the stranger began. I am afraid that while out for a walk I seem to have found myself far from the shelter I normally stay at, and this storm seems likely to be an intense one. I'm very sorry to bother you, but I was wondering if I might impose upon you for a safe place to ride it out. I won't be any bother, I promise. My name is Oscar." Oh, well, I am Jacob, and this is my wife Nora," Jacob said. What do you think, Nora? I'm sure we could spare some space to allow him to get out of the rain for a while, yes?" Of course," Nora replied.
5: "'These are no conditions to be out and sleeping rough in. Please, come in.'
3: And with that, Nora stepped back, beckoning the old man to enter. Slowly, and with some small trouble, Oscar hobbled through the doorway, leaning upon his cane as he did. His gait was irregular and labored. Once inside, Jacob shut the door, and the couple bade him welcome. "'We were actually just sitting down to dinner. Are you hungry, Oscar?' Jacob asked, rounding about for behind him. Oh, well, yes. Please, I'm actually quite famished. Your very kind offer, he replied, his voice somewhat hoarse and scratchy. Nora, would you mind fixing our guest something to eat? Jacob asked of his wife.
5: Of course. Would you care for a sandwich, Oscar? I'm afraid we only cooked enough for the two of us, but I'd be happy to throw one together for you, and we have a fresh tossed salad as well.
3: Nora replied, smiling warmly. Thank you. Yes, that would be wonderful. Oscar replied, his own face splitting into a happy grin.
5: Have a seat at the table and I'll bring that right over to you. But first, please take off your coat and try to warm up.
3: She said, turning and hurrying into the kitchen to prepare a plate for their guests. Jacob helped the seemingly solid yet at the same time feeble old man with his coat, Hanging it upon the coat rack, Jacob then stepped back to Oscar and walked him into the dining room, pulling out the chair at the head of the table and moving his own plates and glass of wine to the seat beside it, opposite that where Nora's meal sat waiting. Would you care for some wine, Oscar? Jacob asked. I would absolutely love some. Thank you, young man. You are both too kind, he replied, taking his seat. It's no problem at all. It's Chianti Classico, our favorite, Jacob said, fetching a glass and pouring a healthy drink for their unexpected dinner guest. Oscar sat with the wine before him, but did not touch it right away. Instead, he thanked Jacob once more and waited until Nora had served him a plate with a sandwich of deli cutlets and cheese upon a piece of artisan bread. Next, she placed a salad beside the plate and sparing a quick and what some might call Odd glance to her husband, sat down behind her own plate. Jacob did the same. It wasn't until they were all seated that the old man took up his glass and raised it in a toast. Well, at the risk of being presumptuous, allow me to raise a toast. To the kindness of strangers and the bounties of kinship with our fellow man and women... "'May you both see long life and rich rewards for the deeds you do in this world,' said Oscar. His voice strangely stronger now, yet still filled with gratitude and mirth. "'I'll
5: drink to that,'
3: said Nora, as she and Jacob joined him, clinking their glasses together above the table. Upon taking a sip of the deep red wine, a broad smile crossed Oscar's face. "'This is wonderful wine.' I don't believe I've had it in, hmm, well, a very long time. So, Oscar, do you live in Trondheim? Jacob asked. For now, yes. Yeah. I tend to wander a bit. I haven't been here long, but it's a lovely city. I like any place that it values its libraries and museums. Naturally, they're excellent places to visit to get out of the sun or rain, but... I've always thought such places were the true value to a people who reside most, Oscar replied. He had, as before, waited for his hosts to sup before he touched his food. As Nora enjoyed a bite of her entree, Oscar happily picked up his sandwich. Jacob cut eagerly into his own dish as he considered the old man's answer. Again, he and Nora exchanged curious, knowing glances across the table. "'Do you have any family in the area?' Jacob inquired, swallowing the rich and succulent cutting of his perfectly cooked meal. "'No, not really. Not much in the way of family these days. I had a brother, but we had a falling out long ago. My son still lives and works around here somewhere, but I haven't spoken to him for some time either. No, it's really just me these days.' wandering around and, well, taking in the sights, I suppose you could say, Oscar said between bites of his sandwich. From his glass, he took a strong pull of wine and sighed with satisfaction as it went down. His glass nearly empty, Jacob happily offered him a refill, for which Oscar expressed his deepest thanks and accepted eagerly. Jacob smiled at his wife, who returned the expression in an oddly sly manner.
5: So, what did you do before you fell into your wandering?
3: Nora asked, looking back to Oscar. He paused, as though unsure of just how to answer. Hmm, I guess you could say I was a librarian. But that was a long, long time ago, when I was a younger man. I've always had a love of books and the written word. It's what gives us and our time immortality, sort of. These days I actually rather like being on the opposite side of the desk in that fashion, though. So much more fulfilling to read books than to catalog and manage them, you know? I can imagine, replied Jacob, still ravenously tucking into his dinner. Before long all three had finished their plates, Jacob and Nora having devoured their steaks and side dishes in surprisingly short order. Oscar lingering on the final bites of his sandwich and salad. Another round of wine was poured, and another toast to new friends and fine dining was offered, this time by Jacob, who himself greedily drank down his cup, while Oscar this time sipped slowly. The storm outside continued to rage, intensifying over the course of dinner. Now high winds battered the trees outside and caused the power lines to sway rain beat down mercilessly to where at times it was picked up by the wind, the outside appearing through the front picture window to be but a slowly darkening gray blur of nature's fury. Thunder growled and boomed above as flashes of powerful lightning flickered and illuminated the world in brilliant blinding white light outside. Jacob shot yet another curious glance to his wife before rising from the table and approaching the window. Pulling the curtains closed, he turned then to Oscar. It's getting really bad out there, Oscar. Would you care to stay the night? I can make up the guest room for you. These are no conditions for anyone to be out in, he offered with an eager sincerity in his voice. A delicious meal and a warm place to sleep. You are too kind, Jacob, and you, Nora. "'I wouldn't want to impose any further, though,' Oscar replied with appreciation and gratitude dripping from every syllable.
5: "'Nonsense,'
3: said Nora, placing her hand upon his.
5: "'We insist. It would be cruel to send anyone out into such a night.'
3: Once more, the couple exchanged glances, speaking without words.
5: "'I will go and ready the room for you. Jacob, keep our guest company until it's done.'
3: "'Of course, love.' Jacob replied as his wife rose from her seat and stepped out into the adjacent hallway. Jacob stepped around behind Oscar, who was just then finishing his wine. Reaching into a drawer at the top of the credenza sitting beside him, he withdrew from it a small pipe, roughly six or seven inches long, and one or two in diameter. Oscar sighed with satisfaction over his belly, now full of food and drink. You two are entirely too kind. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all you've... Oscar's statement of gratitude was cut short and interrupted by the quick crack of the pipe against the back of his head. He slumped forward onto the table, his face landing in a mess of crumbs and a few remaining leafy greens upon the plate from which he had eaten. Blood trickled down the back of his scalp from the ghastly wound Jacob had caused him. He was not dead but merely unconscious and to Oscar the blackness of a dreamless sleep had overtaken him entirely Jacob looked briefly upon the unconscious beggar whose blood began to pool on the dinner plate below his face a smile crept across his face he watched as the otherwise motionless body heaved slightly with breath he was still alive and this was good as Nora re-entered the room her face betraying a sick delight at the sight before her Jacob calmly strolled to the sink, and as though it was simply a piece of silverware from the meal, proceeded to rinse and wash the small baton of his victim's blood. It was only a small smattering, but one which would need to be clean nevertheless.
5: "'This has been a very lucky day,'
3: Nora said, beaming over the man at her table. "'Very lucky indeed. Is everything prepared in the guest room?' he asked placing the now pristine pipe back in the drawer it had come from.
5: It is all ready for our guest. I'm sure we'll enjoy his company for dinner,
3: she replied. The two shared a dark laughter. Such opportunities to indulge their strange passions so seldomly presented themselves in such short order. It had indeed been a very lucky day. In the darkness, Oscar's mind wandered creeping closer and closer to consciousness once more, emerging from the dead black silence of his dreamless sleep. The searing pain upon the back of his head began to radiate in his awareness, growing stronger and more painful with each passing moment as he approached his waking state. Before long, his eyes fluttered and cracked open as the pain grew even more intense. He could feel and smell the smear of dried blood upon his face. As his eyes came into focus, he realized he could not move his hands or feet, as they seemed to be restrained by thick metal shackles that were pinned to the wall behind him. He could feel the cold touch of concrete against his now naked body, and as his eyes came into focus, he realized he was in a basement, To his left, beneath the stairway leading upwards, sat a large, flat cooler, and to his right, a workbench, which was stained with dashes and patches of something dark and brown and reeked pungently in the air, lined the wall. Above the bench hung butchers' implements, cleavers, knives, and hooks. Along the far wall sat a rack of cruel and horrific-looking blades and other tools, all stained as the workbench was. From the center of the ceiling hung a single light bulb from a cord, the only light that Oscar could see. He struggled a bit against his manacles, but it was no use. His hands were pinned to the wall, with his arms outstretched, and his ankles likewise were immobilized by the cold steel of their own cuffs. His feet were not even touching the ground, causing his joints and appendages to pull and ache with pain as his torso and head slumped slightly forward. This was, as he could tell, almost right away, all by design so as to ensure the experience was as needlessly painful and uncomfortable as it could be. He likewise knew right in that moment that he had fallen into a trap, one that those who fall into never leave from alive. He breathed deeply, or at least as deeply as his positioning and restraints would allow. He looked about with his one good eye some more, unsure of even what he might be looking for. There was but one entrance or exit to the room and that was by the stairs. No windows or other doors were to be seen that had not been sealed shut with concrete. Had there even been another means of egress. It would have meant little, however, as his shackles were strong and unyielding. He sighed first, and then groaned as he considered his predicament. It was at that moment that he heard a door atop the stairs open, and a pair of footfalls announced the approach of his captors. "'Hello, Oscar,' greeted Jacob upon reaching the base of the steps. "'Nor and I were wondering when you might wake up. I cannot tell you how delighted we have been to have you arrive on our door tonight.' did you enjoy your dinner why uh, why have you done this oscar found his throat dry and his voice creaked and cracked as he struggled to speak he shifted nervously in his place as jacob moved closer well you see my wife and i we share a love of a particular indulgence Something which is generally frowned upon by society, you might say, Jacob responded, moving his face close to that of the old man who hung helpless before him. So you're psychopaths, then? Serial killers or something? Nothing so basic, no. I mean, yes, you will die here, but that hopefully won't be for some time. Allow me to give you a little taste of what you're in for, please. His tone was unnervingly calm and cordial. His whole demeanor was, in point of fact, disturbingly casual as he strolled then over to the workbench and picked up a long, serrated knife, which, though cleaned and even sterilized, still possessed flecks of stained, dried blood upon the handle. Donning a heavy leather apron, itself as equally stained and wretched as the tools and surfaces which surrounded them, Jacob then put on a pair of clear safety glasses and pulled on a set of stained rubber gloves. Is this some kind of satanic thing? Oscar croaked. Had Jacob been paying closer attention, he may have noticed that the old man's voice lacked any real terror but instead possessed a tone of genuine inquiry. Oh no. Nora and I are not believers. This isn't some sacrifice or any sort of ritual. Or oh, well, Jacob continued, sounding as though he'd had a second thought. Well, I guess it is a sort of a ritual, but it's really just for us. My lovely wife and I. Jacob returned to his captive Who was strewn up naked and shivering holding the knife up for oscar to see for a moment he placed it down upon a small table which sat beside them then taking up a length of what appeared to be rubber tubing he proceeded to tie it around oscar's upper thigh as a tourniquet once more taking up the blade jacob cut deep into oscar's leg straight down to the bone he continued cutting sawing lightly as the knife split and cut his femur cleanly. Soon, Jacob had cut his leg completely from his body, causing it to fall outward and bob a bit as the still-shackled ankle remained bound to the wall. Blood gushed from the limb and poured dripping from the stump it had previously been attached to. Oscar howled in pain and shrieked as he felt his leg separate. His screaming continued as Jacob unfastened the cuff at the ankle. And took the still gushing leg over to the workbench. Nora watched, eyes wide and wild and filled with a dark and twisted glee. You see, we love our dinner guests. In fact, we love them so much, we like to keep them around for a while. Our last guest we actually expended just tonight. She was absolutely delicious. To be honest, I miss her already. As he spoke, Jacob began methodically butchering the leg in front of its previous owner. He began by skinning it, then deboning it, removing the blood-soaked flesh from its framework. Once done, he began to cut steaks from it with all the skill of a real and professional butcher. Jacob continued, You know, my father was a butcher. When I was a boy... I used to watch him clean the game animals the hunters in our little town would bring in. I remember one time his voice remained disturbingly calm and almost friendly as he continued cutting the meat into portions. I remember one time a friend of his brought in the biggest moose I had ever seen. I honestly couldn't believe how quickly and precisely he managed to turn Such a massive beast into cutlets and fillets and steaks. The man, he was truly an artist.
5: You're an artist too, my love.
3: Nora added in a disturbingly, almost wholesome tone. Thank you, dear, Jacob replied, glancing back over to her, over his shoulder. You see, Oscar, it was also my father who more or less taught me how to butcher a man as well. It was, oh, 20 years or so ago. This Slav, some Russian or maybe a Serbian, I can't remember, found his way to our little town and thought it would be a good place to be a burglar. One night, he came creeping in through my little sister's window. She screamed. He tried to silence her and, well, she died while he struggled to control her broken neck. My father managed to catch him before he could escape, and rather than turn him over to the police, he decided to turn him into hamburger. So, you come from a line of cannibals, eh? Oscar croaked, trying to lift his head and gaze. Suddenly, a wrench smashed into the side of Oscar's face, and from his mouth flew a handful of shattered teeth and blood pain coursed through his head and neck. Nora gripped the wrench tightly in her hand and seethed as she looked on the butchered man.
5: Don't you dare attempt to insult my husband's father! He's a great man!
3: She shrieked. A look of pure, unhinged malevolence in her eyes. Now, now, Nora. There's no need to defend the dead. Oscar was simply curious, I'm sure. Isn't that right, Oscar? Jacob said with a smirk. Oscar struggled to speak as his mouth filled with blood. After. after a fashion, I suppose, he murmured with a muted and pained voice. But no. He was merely using his skills to dispose of my sister's murderer. Though I may have slipped a bit of evidence away when he wasn't looking. Just a curiosity. But once I supped upon it, well, it was a. Life-changing experience, to say the least, Jacob explained. He had now moved on to wrapping his freshly cut steaks in brown butcher's paper, skillfully tying the packages neatly with twine, almost without attention or effort. So, why don't you just kill me already? Oscar asked. The words were gobbled and laborious to get out, yet strangely, his speech remained unfearful. Well, for one thing, a living body always provides the freshest cuts, do you know? But beyond that, Nora takes pleasure in tenderizing it. Isn't that right,
5: dear? Absolutely, my love.
3: Nora replied, swinging a short mop handle she had taken from the shelf firmly into Oscar's abdomen. He coughed and sputtered as a mix of blood and vomit flew from his mouth. His bowels released as a flow of shit and blood left his body, adding to the stains and wretched smells of his captive location. She shrieked wildly as she hit him once more, causing him to grunt and his head to fall forward. The pain seemed almost worsened as his body attempted to double over, but couldn't. After a moment, Oscar slumped and hung loosely, his remaining strength leaving his body entirely. Now, now, my love.' "'We don't want to bruise his inners too much. "'We will have use for them as always,' chimed Jacob. "'Nora breathed deeply, catching her breath.
5: "'Of course, darling. Of course.'
3: "'Jacob handed her two of the wrapped cuts of meat as she replaced the mop handle. "'Here. Would you take these upstairs so we can have them tomorrow? "'I'm going to put the rest in the freezer.' Nodding with a wicked smile, Nora took the packages from him and, shooting a quick glance to the bloodied and dismembered Oscar, trotted up the stairs. Jacob, after placing the small stack of packages in the lay-down cooler beneath the stairs, then removed his gloves and glasses. Before closing the cooler, he withdrew from it an IV bag, such as those used in hospitals, and hung it from a small hook just above and beside Oscar's hanging body. He spoke to his captive calmly and almost warmly as he placed the attached needle into Oscar's neck. Here, this, Oscar, will help keep you alive for the time that you're here, and though the tourniquet will keep you from bleeding out, I'm afraid I will need to cauterize your wound. Taking up a handheld blowtorch, Jacob struck the spark igniter and dialed the torch to a thin blue flame. This will not be entirely pleasant for you. Here bite down on this. Half offering and half forcing a small bit of wood wrapped in soiled cloth into Oscar's mouth, Jacob then proceeded to take the flame to the still-bleeding stump of his leg's prey. Oscar reflexively bit down hard on the stick within his mouth with what few teeth remained. He screamed in muffled agony as the flames burned and sealed his wound, The smell of cooking flesh turned his stomach, and though only taking a few moments, the process seemed to drag out for an eternity. Finally, however, it was done. His body, which had seized and jerked, slumped and hung limp once more. The bit in his mouth fell to the floor, stained in blood and speckled with chips of tooth. Jacob dialed down the flame until it was out, and spoke once more to the barely conscious Oscar. You have a curious resilience to you, Oscar. Most people would have passed out by now. And, well, it's strange. Usually they're terrified, but you... You don't seem scared at all. Why is that? Do you wish to die? Oscar struggled to bring his head up, but failed. Jacob, observing this effort, grabbed a tuft of his hair and lifted his gaze for him. He wasn't sure... But he could almost swear that through the bloody mess that was Oscar's face he was smiling. I, Oscar began struggling with each syllable. I would hate to spoil your dinner. Jacob was stunned and not the least bit amazed and intrigued by his captive's fortitude. Unlike Nora, who took her primary pleasure in the beating and battering and torture of whomever was so unfortunate to fall into their clutches, Jacob enjoyed the butchery. Whether his victims were scared or angry, whether they pleaded for their lives or lashed out with impotent rage, with promises of retribution, he typically felt effectively nothing either way. They were just meat, after all. But this one, he felt, was different strange and for the briefest of moments he thought he may even like the man he offered oscar a craven smile well thank you for that i'm going to get cleaned up i would imagine nora would visit you once more before we head to bed but for my part i'll say good night oscar i'll see you tomorrow sweet dreams "'Jacob,' Oscar rasped, before having his head again allowed to slump forward. Jacob turned and left, heading back up the stairs, and the whole while feeling intensely curious about their strange interaction. As he neared the top of the stairs, he was met by Nora, who seemed to positively vibrate with excitement. In her hands, she held a pair of gardening shears and a stun gun.
5: "'Is he still awake?'
3: She asked, like a child wanting to go out and play. Yes, have your fun, my darling, but please remember not to damage any of the good meat or organs too badly.
5: Of course not, my love, of course not.
3: Nora sweetly kissed her husband on the cheek before stepping down onto the first step of the stairway. There's something strange about this one, Jacob said, still reflecting on the oddness of his interaction. Strange? It's as though he's... Not even afraid. Not of death, or any of it. Yes, strange. Nora's face split into a wicked smirk.
5: I'm sure I can change that.
3: Perhaps you will. Try not to stay up too late. I am headed to bed.
5: I won't. Good night, husband.
3: Good night, loving wife. Over the course of the following week, Jacob and Nora took their turns torturing and butchering Oscar. During the days, Nora would slip down the stairs to beat, burn, and sometimes skin her captive. That first night, she had taken his manhood. Over the following days, his fingers and the toes on his one remaining foot. She sliced his ears off, his nose, and at one point gouged out his milky blind eye, stating that the sight of it sickened and offended her. Jacob, in turn, would then follow her after Oscar had been given some time to linger with whatever fresh wounds were inflicted. He would talk, almost casually with him over trivial nothings, as he methodically took and butchered his leg, then his arms the following days. He was consistently impressed with the endurance and emotional control Oscar exuded, even and especially, once with his limbs now removed, he was strapped by his torso and neck to an adjacent workbench, He would of course scream in pain as the days in misery wore on, but never uttered a sound of fear or even anger. He merely endured and Jacob was quite impressed. Soon the end came for Oscar. Following a final round of Nora's particularly aggressive savagery, Oscar was disemboweled with his intestines, kidneys, gallbladder, lungs, liver, and heart all removed and turned into some variation of meat product. As he bled out and his vital systems finally failed, he exhaled one final sigh from the now toothless and tongueless mouth and passed on. The majority of his internal organs were put through a grinder and stuffed into his stomach, producing a form of human haggis his heart was taken quite immediately up to the kitchen where it would be braised with wine and served with the same sauteed vegetables as had been supped on the night of his arrival even his brain was removed and prepared a la creme before long only his remaining bones and some trace bits of unused offal remained for all but his skull a small vat of hydrochloric acid was prepared and his few final bits were soon melted and poured into a sealed hole in the corner of the basement where Jacob would allow the liquefied remains to soak into the cold earth beneath the foundation. Once done, Jacob set to work cleaning Oscar's skull, observing the jagged marks upon the eye socket from where Nora had carved out his one blind eye. It was not meant to be a keepsake as such. more a decoration which Jacob would like to leave as a calling card deep in the mountain forests where he and his wife would often hike. He could never entirely explain why he liked to do this, wondering from time to time if it was some matter of deeper pathology that accompanied or accented his murderous and carnivorous tendencies. But all the same, some week later, He and Nora would work up a healthy appetite by trekking for many, many miles along one of their favorite routes, and Jacob would place the skull within a patch of ferns along the forest floor. And that, they believed, was the end of it. They believed. At least, they believed. The ground was cold that morning. Oscar's skull had sat undisturbed and unmolested by either man or beast for just over a week. On the tenth day, a gathering of ravens began circling and landing around it. An unkindness of ravens, as they are known. Though the birds flocked by the dozen to stand about the white and clean human skull on the forest floor, none approached, nor did they call out or make any sound at all aside from the occasional chirp or whistle. Then, once the last of them had come down from the sky and trees and did surround the skull of what was previously Oscar, two bold birds walked and hopped up to meet it in the center of their circle. The first and closest squawked at the skull, followed then by the second, who took the additional step of even pecking slightly at the empty left eye socket before hopping back and joining his friend in song. Soon the whole of the birds squawked and trilled, flapping their wings and creating a choral cacophony that filled the forest and could be heard for miles. Their avian chirps sounded almost like maddening chants as all the other nearby creatures either hid or fled. As their song continued to grow in volume, the earth below began to almost vibrate and shake, and the ravens all, save the two in the middle, stepped or hopped back giving open ground around the skull to which they sang. From the earth below the skull, tendrils of vines and blooming flowers grew at impossible speeds around and within and through the skull itself. Stretching downward from the broken lower jawbone, the flora sprung quickly from the ground, only to grow and blossom and die, and then to be replaced almost immediately by even more the unnaturally swift cycles of birth and growth and death and birth again soon began to form a mound the thickness and size and shape of a man, lending a floral body to the naked skull. Once this man-shaped mound had grown to appropriate size, the same veins and flowers grew to encase the skull itself, creating a flesh of green and ruddy brown dirt about it. The two ravens, who had stepped forward to summon their master back from the realm of death remained by the man-shaped mound's side, with one hopping up upon what would have been the chest of a golem as the other stood just beside its head. The bird upon the chest pecked and clawed at the dirt and vines beneath its feet as his comrade chirped and tittered into the side of the head. Suddenly, the center mass of the thing heaved, as though taking in a deep breath and from beneath the mound sat up an old man with only one eye. Oscar, somehow, had returned. He breathed deeply as the vines and rising flowers wrapped his naked body. Rising to his feet, they shifted and transmuted, becoming trousers, a shirt, a long, dusty coat, and a wide-brimmed hat. From the earth then rose a stick, which met his hand and separated the moment he grasped it. It grew slightly larger, becoming a fine walking stick upon which he leaned slightly as he regained his balance. The two ravens squawked with delight and flew up to perch upon his shoulders. Oscar cleared his throat for a moment before speaking to the birds with a kindly and affectionate tone. Thank you. Thank you, boys. I didn't expect things to go that way. I'm not sure that's ever happened, actually. The birds chirped and chittered. Yes, I suppose I shall. Oscar turned his one good eye to the right, glancing as he could at the bird perched beside his face. Munin, find my son and inform him as to what happened. Tell him to make the appropriate preparations and we shall need another show tonight as we had last time. And tell him I said good work on the last one. The bird squawked once before taking flight off into the forest and out above the canopy. The remaining raven chirped, as though asking a question. Oscar leaned his head to the side as he could not see the bird, but acknowledged it all the same. Yes, it'll be tonight. I see no reason to delay. Any thoughts on what I might ought to do after, Hugin? he asked. The bird squawked loudly twice, and Oscar laughed in response. Ah, "'Splendid idea. Come, let your brothers know we're heading off, and there will be a fine feast waiting for them soon.' The birds squawked once more before taking flight. The old man, stick in hand, then set off through the forest. He had a dinner party to attend, and another still to host. His guests didn't even know they were invited.' As Jacob pulled a steaming rack of human ribs, glazed and perfectly cooked from his oven, he smiled at his wife, who stood mashing potatoes at the counter. The pair had enjoyed several artisanal meals from the flesh of the old beggar, and both found the meat to be unusually succulent and delicious. They found it Genuinely surprising that such an old and tired and malnourished body would provide for them such an enjoyable series of suppers, but it had, and they both watched the depleting stock of Oscar with dismay.
0: Do
5: you think we should find more homeless like him?
3: Nora asked, adding some additional cream and roasted garlic to the potatoes she stirred. I guess we could try. Though it's not as though there are all that many. Who knew we might go hungry due to a healthy economy, Jacob joked.
5: Who knew indeed?
3: (laughs) Nora replied, laughing. To see the two of them in such an ordinary state of domestic bliss was a stark and stunning contrast compared to the dark delights they engaged in so frequently. To any unknowing observer, they would appear to be a perfectly normal and even infectiously happy couple. And perhaps... That might make their grim passions and hidden natures all the more disturbing, as beyond the absence of any semblance of guilt, the utter normality of the pair would make any suspicion of their bloodthirsty and murderous reality seem like utter nonsense. They were the picture of happiness, soon to be shadowed by the arrival of an oncoming storm. The clouds and rain seemed to come seemingly out of nowhere and the weather forecast for that night had said nothing of any oncoming or expected storms. Yet above the city, lightning began to crack the skies, and throughout the streets, winds of incredible strength picked up and caused the trees and street signs and power lines to sway and blow about wildly. A crack of thunder rang out and pulled the couple's attention to the front window of the house. Jacob was still tending the freshly cooked ribs which he had set upon the counter and was startled by the unexpected boom which came from outside. It was a powerful sound. He and Nora looked to one another, slightly stunned, before Nora cracked a smile.
5: Maybe we'll get lucky with the weather a second time,
3: she said, before, as though perfectly on cue, a knock came at the front door. She looked briefly to the door. An expression of almost giddy disbelief on her face, before returning her gaze to Jacob. He moved to answer, but Nora simply held up her hand.
5: You mind the ribs. I'll see who's come to dinner.
3: Jacob was strangely uneasy all of a sudden, but smiled at his wife all the same. There could be no way their luck could be this good, he thought to himself, and as he would see, he was right. Nora approached the door with giddy anticipation. Without even asking who it might be or looking through the people to see, she opened the door excitedly to find a most impossible sight. There before her stood Oscar once again. Upon his shoulder was perched a large black raven who almost immediately leapt at her, grabbing the front of her shirt and chest with long, sharp talons and plunging its beak deep into her eye sockets, gouging from them the soft eyeballs, leaving her blinded and screaming as blood ran freely down her face. It all happened too quickly for Jacob to have any chance to do anything. Upon the front step, Oscar gripped his walking stick. Lifting it, He brought its base down hard upon the concrete step, and as he did, the stick nearly doubled in length. Where had been a knotted and bending tree branch, Oscar now held a hefty, finely crafted spear with a large golden blade and tip upon it. As Nora shrieked in pain, Oscar took up and drove the tip through her abdomen, driving it clean through her body and out through her back. Lifting it and her now kicking and flailing body into the air, he deftly and with apparent ease swung the shaft and hurled her body from it, sending it careening to the mantle along the side room. He fixed his one eye, now fiery and alight, with an otherworldly power upon Jacob, who stood transfixed and dumbfounded at this most impossible sight. Jacob's gaze shifted for a moment to the convulsing body of his wife who lay broken, Eyeless and covered in blood as the last of her life left her Before he could speak a word or make a motion Oscar was upon him Driving the spear clean through his left shoulder just beneath his collarbone Cracking bone and tearing through muscle tissue as though it was butter Oscar drove forward Pushing the spear tip through Jacob's back Shattering his shoulder blade before driving it into the wall behind him Pinning him to it Jacob howled in excruciating pain as his knees gave out and the full weight of his frame hung helplessly from its impossibly painful wound. He struggled to breathe through his panicked hyperventilation and struggled to see through the tears which welled up in his eyes. Nora's body jerked upon the floor involuntarily a couple more times before a gurgling final breath escaped her body in a chilling death rattle. Jacob tried to scream but found he couldn't. Wiping the tears from his eyes with his one free hand he watched, Oscar returned to the front door and gave a whistle out into the howling winds and rains of the storm outside. No sooner had he done so than did that same group of ravens, that same unkindness from the forest before, flew and fluttered in to the home wildly, appearing like a black mass of squawks, caws, and feathers. The birds quickly took up positions all around the house, covering nearly every available spot or perch there was to be claimed. Soon, the entirety of the living room and connected dining room and kitchen were covered with them, like an inky black sheet of avian disdain. They paused then, once they had massed in full, and seemed to look to Oscar, who removed his hat and surveyed the flock. "'Feast!' he shouted. And as one, the whole of the unkindness fell upon both the now-dead Nora and the still-suffering Jacob, pecking and rending their flesh mercilessly. Jacob screamed in pain, only to find his booms of thunder perfectly timed ringing out to muffle the sound of his agony. After his second scream ran out into the deafness of the world, two birds thrust their pointed beaks into his mouth, snatching out his tongue entirely. His screams became gurgles as his blood filled his mouth and throat. All about his body, holes had been pecked open, and an unrelenting throng of piercing beaks darted in and out of them, pulling from his ruined form muscle and sinew and veins and cartilage which the birds feasted upon greedily. As he felt the life begin to drain from him, his vision began to fade for as they took so rapaciously to the whole of his body and face, the ravens left his eyes as a cruel mercy, so that he might look upon the architect of his torment. There before him, watching proudly from his one good eye, Oscar approached him and leaned into whisper of what remained of his one remaining ear. His voice was not the weak, creaking of his time before his death, nor the warm, humble voice he had first arrived with, but rather now Oscar, spoke with an indescribable gravity. Even as his mostly pecked-away ears could hear practically nothing, Oscar's voice rang as true and as clear as any he had ever heard, if not more so. Hello again, Jacob, he said, almost as though he were speaking directly into his mind. Your hospitality, that and you of your wife, was rather lacking. Allow me to show you mine in kind. Oscar gripped the shaft of the spear which pinned Jacob to the wall, and seemingly without much of any effort at all, twisted it, ripping the already large wound in his shoulder larger. The long, wide, flat blade of it began popping his ribs as it turned within him, and Jacob now hadn't even the throat or air with which to scream. After a moment in which seemed like the blink of an eye, The spear was pulled free from his now-destroyed upper torso, and before his body could even fall to hit the ground, he felt it plunged without hesitation or mercy in and through his chest. The sensation lasted but a moment, and then all was black and silent. Time ceased to be anything he could process or understand. Being itself became incorporeal and alien, almost as though it was not being at all. Yet after a mere moment, which stretched to a point of feeling infinite, the darkness lifted, and the sight of a grand banquet hall materialized in his vision. He was seated at a small table, upon which sat an empty golden plate, an empty golden chalice and a golden fork and knife, all of which shimmered beneath the flickering light of the candle before him and the grand flaming candelabras which hung from the ceiling. Across from him at the table sat Nora, who though still covered in blood, appeared to have her eyes back. In point of fact, all of her wounds, and his, seemed to have been healed, though the blood and viscera of their prior taking remained clinging to their now naked bodies. Around both of their wrists were strong iron cuffs with chains which ran to the floor. The chains, it seemed, had enough slack so that they might reach out and across to one another, though from their table they could clearly not escape. Jacob reached out and touched his wife's face, caressing it, as the two exchanged looks of bewilderment and terror. Tears flowed freely from her eyes, and she began to whimper in fear. Jacob sought to console his love then. "'Nora. Nora, it's okay. It's okay. I'm right here. We're alive,' he said, each word tinged with confusion and uncertainty. "'Not exactly,' boomed a voice from the far end of the hall. There, atop a dais, and sitting upon a throne of ornate gold and iron, sat Oscar. He was, however, not dressed as the beggar they had met and consumed, but rather in a long, fine cloak, embroidered with gold. His round, broad-brimmed hat likewise, ornate and embroidered with a craftsmanship unlike either of them had ever seen, hung upon the spire of the high back on the seat in his hand, he held the great spear with which he had killed them, and its golden blade and tip shone brightly against the fires from the Grand brazier which burned below. Us? Os. Oscar? Jacob stammered, rising from his seat and finding just enough chain to stand beside the table. That is one name I have taken, yes. The man himself. However, I think you know now that is not my true name. Oscar boomed.
5: Who? What are you?
3: Nora asked, her voice trembling in terror. I am known as Forni, the Ancient One, Hovi, the High. I am Valgatur, and Valjosander, and Valtir, the Great Slaughter, the Chooser of the Slain, the Slain God. I am Yir, the Terrible. I am Alfur, the All Allfather. I, as you can likely now see, am Odin, and you have been found more than merely wanting Nora and Jacob Reese, but to be Vandir, unclean and evil. I sought your hospitality as is my way, and yet throughout all of my many centuries testing and judging man upon his treatment of his lesser, I have never, come across to so wretched and vile as you. And mind you, I am the Lord and Father of those who offer me praise and worship with tributes of blood and sacrifice, and yet you, who make a ritual of death, who relish and revel in the taking of lives, do so not even as tribute to your gods, but simply to feast upon the flesh of my children and make of yourselves gods in your own home. This cannot stand unaddressed, he boomed from the throne. What will you do with us, O oh our Father? Jacob whimpered, bowing his head in hopes of supplicating the old god. In times of old, this place, Valhalla, was a place of honor for those who died in battle. Here, my warriors would feast and fight and rise again and enjoy the splendor of their ravages and contests for eternity by my side. And elsewhere in my realm here, they still do. However, for you, I have decided to bring you here and invite you to a dinner unlike that you have ever known. Look upon your wife, Jacob Rees. Look upon her. And feel that hunger again, Odin said, his voice again carrying itself directly into Jacob's mind, inspiring him. A sudden, overwhelming sense of starvation. As his eyes turned to his wife, she looked up to him from her seat, her own eyes wide and terrified. Looking upon her, he found her beautiful in the flickering candlelight which surrounded them. Her lips and cheeks full and red, her eyes wide and gorgeous, and her neckline then. Her neckline, so graceful and feminine and utterly irresistible. Jacob turned to her and leaned in, first gently kissing her upon the neck, growing more passionate and intense with every passing moment. Then the kiss became a nibble gently dragging his teeth along her soft and supple skin. The nibble grew then into a bite, one which found his teeth sinking deep into her flesh and down into her muscle. She screamed in pain, yet Jacob did not stop, not until his mouth was filled with the flesh and blood of her neck, loosed from her body and tasting strangely bitter and wholly revolting. She continued to scream as blood began to spurt from the gnashed and open wound below her ear. Jacob chewed greedily before swallowing the bite and then, without will or intent, went in for yet another. This time his teeth sank deep into her face, gnawing off the flesh from her cheek, again the taste more bitter and more repulsive than any other he had experienced. And yet still, he bit and chewed and swallowed, all not only without will, but against a will he felt to be utterly powerless. No matter how wretched it was or how his beloved screamed in anguish, he simply could not stop. And you, Nora Reese, will you not sup this evening with your husband? Odin boomed. Without a word, just as Jacob had done. Nora complied gripping her husband's cock and biting it clean off with a single, compelled snap of her jaw. Jacob let out a muffled howl of pain as Nora's blood ran down from his chin, his mouth still filled with a portion of her face. She chewed and found the flavor vile and flatly sickening, yet like he she could not stop feasting upon it soon it was chewed and gone, and as Jacob lunged in to snap a savage mouthful of her naked breast and rend it from her body, she too jumped at him and ripped a large and bloody piece of his shoulder off with her teeth. Odin smiled darkly from his throne as he watched the pair devour each other. This is now your eternity, transgressors. As my warriors fight and die and rise again, so too shall you feast endlessly upon one another, only to reconstitute and begin all over again. At no point, even once you have devoured the other, will you be remotely satiated. In point of fact, for each bite you take from now until the end of all things, and then, even after that, will your hunger grow deeper and more ravenous, never to be satisfied. When your muscles are all but gone, before you awaken again to feast once more, the dragger, the Unliving, shall descend upon your remains to defile them further. You will watch your greatest love ravaged by creatures of unspeakable foulness, and with each passing day of this you will find both your flesh more desiccated and foul and yet your hunger will never end. This is the toll you must pay for what you have done, and pay it you shall, endlessly now and forever. Enjoy your suppers, Odin declared as he watched the pair continue to weep and moan and scream and gorge themselves on the flesh of the other. Quickly, skin gave way to muscle which gave way to bone and all the foulness of their innards. Yet still they supped and bit and chewed and swallowed only to go immediately in for another bite, until both had ripped and devoured the flesh from their limbs and torsos, unmasked and blinded the skeletal faces behind their own, and crumpled to the floor a bloody mess of entrails and gore. Even still, though, without means to even properly move, They tried their mightiest to continue to feed their deepening hunger, and then once all their strength or mobility was gone, the groans and hisses of creatures of unspeakable darkness began to creep in from the shadows, the long, sharp teeth bared, and many possessed of fetid and erect members seeking out the warmth of their prey's bodies. Still awake and alert and aware of everything the pair watched with what eyes they still had between them, as their lover was then violated and further consumed by these undead creatures of the deep. Screams of physical pain rang out, tinged with the suffering of heartbreak and unquenched appetites, all until nothing remained but pain and hunger and an impossible ongoing knowledge of the misery that was, that is, and is still yet to come. In time, Mere moments that stretched out forever, their flesh regrew agonizingly with stabs of unworldly pain coursing throughout their forms until they were again whole and again alone and again desperate for a bitter and vile taste of each other. In the skies above Hadishlev, a storm began to churn. It looked to be a powerful one, and along a quiet street looking for a home in which to seek some shelter and perhaps some food, Oscar strode slowly, his long, dirty coat hanging down from his shoulders, his broad, round-brimmed hat beginning to catch the first drops of rain. It was likely going to be one hell of a storm. His son had already seen to it.
1: I hope you enjoyed The One Blind Eye, as written by Nick Goroff and performed by Nick Goroff and Melissa Medina. Voice actor in 2016, Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. If you drop by, don't forget to let him know you heard him here. As a reminder, voice actress Melissa Medina's work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as her website, Hearmelissa.com. That's H-E-A-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A.com. Now, our weekly Descent into the Depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work, going back to 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website chillingtalesfordarknights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host Steve Taylor and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Chilling Tales for Dark Nights.